Hey, well, thank you, Greg, and worship team. Thank you for singing uh, and, uh, and your part in worship so far here this morning. Uh, well, you found us in part five of a six-part series called Trust Me, and I'm looking forward to the, the conversation today. And, and I realize that there comes a time in everyone's life when you have to ask some of life's biggest questions and then have to answer them. And what I've learned from our youth group here in the past several weeks is that they ask big questions in the youth group, in the student ministry, and they seek to answer them. In fact, there's this really big question that if you've never addressed this question before in your life, you need to get a handle on this one to start off our talk this morning, and it's this. Is a hot dog a sandwich? It's a big, it's a big question that has been brewing for maybe months uh, with a lot of uncertainty around this issue. And there's two clear answers to this question, by the way, and, and one is the exact answer of, well, if you put bread around anything, it's a sandwich, right? So we could make a pew sandwich this morning, right? And just put bread and you... So one answer is, yes, it is a sandwich. And the other answer is this, if you keep asking this question, you will never get a girlfriend. <laughs> I resolved myself to my face. <laughs> Speaking of girlfriends, the girlfriend that I dated for a while, and now my wife, taught me a whole other set of questions and a whole other issue. Um, and that is this. I learned that there's actually the right answer to this question right here, and that is, which M&M color is the best? Now, I never thought about this until I started dating Jen, who actually organizes her M&Ms before she eats them. Are there any fellow M&M organizers out there? Yeah? That's troubling. Okay. And she said, and I don't believe this, she said the brown ones are best because it's like extra chocolate. But it's the right answer, right, men? Yep, that's the right answer. That is the right answer. Okay. And there's another question, and here's another question. Which goes first on your sausage sandwich, meat or cheese? Okay, when you're building a sandwich, you could also fill in taco with this. What goes first on the taco, meat or cheese, when you put them together? We were at an elder meeting like a couple months ago, and at an elder meeting, we tend to have food, and, which is always a good thing, and, and a couple guys in front of me who were, by the way, spiritual leaders of the church, they put cheese on first and then sausage. And I'm like, cavemen, are you kidding me? Like, what is, like, who would make a burger, for example, and put cheese on first and then the hamburger? Like, no one would do that. You would say that's upside down and wrong to do that. But we have people who actually do it both ways. It's unbelievable to me. So there are questions, there are huge questions in this world that we ask that have impact on how we live. They simply do. Now, the bigger questions you know and you've asked, and, and uh, they take way too long to answer, and you've talked about them for all your life, like, why am I here? Is there a God? You know, why does God allow good things to happen to bad people or bad things to happen to good people? All kinds of big, big questions. And one of the things you know about big questions uh, is that how you answer those questions actually drives your life. So if you're in line for a sandwich and you're building it and you see cheese and sausage... How you answer that question determines what kind of sandwich you get. If you have a package of M&Ms and you open them and you, you're either going to be like me and, and eat those babies or you know, organize them and save some for later. And so how you answer life's biggest questions actually determines how you live. And there are more important questions than others, of course, but here's what I also want to say this morning. I want to jump into a really big question this morning. I want to nuance this a little bit further and say this, that, that responding to life's biggest questions with small answers leads to even smaller living. That responding to life's biggest questions with small answers actually leads to even smaller living. And what I want us to look at this morning in the passage of Scripture that we're going to be in in the book of Genesis is um, a question, a singular question 
that people who have great faith answer one way, and people who have less than great faith answer another way. And it's such a huge question that by default, our response to this question will determine the strength and quality of faith in our life. And when we answer life's biggest questions with small answers, we tend to live small lives. I want to look at that with you this morning in the, gospel, in the book of Genesis. So if you have a Bible with you, I want to invite you to turn to the first book in the Bible, Genesis, Genesis chapter 17 is where we're going to be beginning. If you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew near you. Uh, and Genesis, again, is the first book in the Old Testament. You can pull it up on your phone or your tablet, but we'd love to have you turn there uh, to Genesis chapter 17. And we're picking up the story of, of Abraham and Sarah, um, two people who were you know, following God and moving through uh, the land that they were in. And Abraham was promised a child and um, become a father of many nations. And at this point, that hadn't really come to bear. So Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse one is where I want to begin our, our story this morning. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Look how he introduces himself. I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless, and then I will make my covenant between me and you and will increase, greatly increase your numbers. So just as a point of pause, it's been at least 13 years since we talked last Sunday. I know your week may have felt like that, but that's the truth. In Genesis, at least, it's been 13 years. Ishmael was born to, Ab- to Sarah, or to, excuse me, to Hagar last week, and Abram was only 86 last week. He's now 99, and this promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations is still yet to come to bear. But the, the introduction demands attention that God introduces himself as the one who is almighty, which does mean what it sounds like, all things can come under his might and strength. And I would wonder, and I don't know if you'd be in this category, but I would wonder if it's been 13 years since we last talked about this God, you know, is this really going to happen? Am I really going to get what you said? I don't know if it would take me even 13 years to get to that point. I think sometimes it takes me only a couple weeks to think, I don't know if God's going to come through. This has now been 13 years for Abraham. But what God does is he doesn't water down the promises of 13 years ago. In fact, he adds clarity and strength to them. Look at verse 3. And so Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you the father of many nations. And I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Pause it there for a minute. Sometimes, I don't know about you, but sometimes I don't have a problem believing the big picture stuff about God. Look at the big picture stuff God talks about here in verse 7. He says, I'll establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant. And then look in verse 8. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession. We're talking about eternal, everlasting, big picture. Sometimes I don't have a problem believing the big picture stuff about God, but it is the small picture stuff about God that I struggle with. 
You know, for example, that God will someday bring peace to the world, that there one day will no longer be war, there will no longer be fighting, there will no longer be injustice, that God will bring everything under his control. Like, I believe that, right? I'm just not sure he can do that tomorrow with the person at work that I'm in conflict with. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I'm not sure that my family will actually change, but yeah, I know that I can come under the big picture promises of God that doesn't bother me. It's also so far away that it doesn't force me to respond today. And so we are in the big picture, and frankly, few of us, if you are someone who calls yourself a follower of Jesus, have a, hard time, hard, have a really hard time with the big picture stuff, because it doesn't demand anything of us. It's too big. It's too far away. We don't actually ever think about it. But it's when it gets small, and when it gets personal, and when it gets in your face, and when it has a name, and when it smells like something, and when you worry about whether you'll have enough of it or too much of it, that's where faith really comes to bear. So God zooms in on this promise. He goes further in in verse 15. God also said to Abraham, Hey, uh, as for Sarah, Sarai, your wife, you're no longer going to call her Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her, and I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Sarah, by the way, is 90 years old right now. So if you were Abraham, by the way, and you're almost 100, and Sarah is 90, how do you react when God says, your wife will be the mother of nations, kings of peoples will come from her? Well, look what Abraham does, verse 17. Abraham fell face down, and he either was going to laugh or cry, and so he laughed, and he said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? And Abraham said to God, but I might say too, if only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Here's what I think Abraham is saying. He's saying, God, I mean, that's great that you're giving me this promise, but I've been waiting for a long time for you to come through. Can we just work with what we have? Like, I mean, I already have Ishmael. He's 13. Can we, can we just... Can you not plant another seed of hope and ask me to trust in something that may not come to bear? I mean, I'm 100 and she's 90. This is a little ridiculous. And then God said, um, yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son and you'll call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. In other words, Abraham, this is really going to happen. Now, some time elapses between the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. I want to pick it up at the beginning of chapter 18 because the story continues. It's just a long story. And in chapter 17, God introduces Abraham to this idea. And in chapter 18, then God, through three visitors, visits the camp where Abraham and his family you know, are at. So look at verse 18, verse 1 with me. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby, and when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. And he said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, please do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. 
Have you ever seen a 99-year-old man hurry? Just picture that one for a minute. So here's this 100-year-old Abraham hurrying in to Sarah. Quick, he said. Get three sayas of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. You ever been in a restaurant where they had slow service? Then you ask, what, did they have to go find the chicken and kill it? Yes, they did. Right here, yes, they did. That's what's happening here. This isn't like, hey, grab something out of the microwave or out of the fridge and throw it in the microwave quick and let's serve it. Um, We are kneading bread and then baking it. And then (laughs) then he ran at 100 years old, to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. And he then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and and set these before them. This had to take a long time. Maybe hours, I don't know. This was not a 20-minute event. And while they ate, he stood like a stalker near them under a tree. It's kind of weird to me, imagining this happening. They're over there, and he's standing under a tree, watching them. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Now imagine what would happen in the camp, though, for a minute. Just imagine what would happen in the camp. The patriarch, Abraham, 100 years old, he's running. He's hurried. He's bowed down to the ground to these people. And this causes commotion in the camp. We've already shown that Abraham and his camp is not just him and Sarah out camping for a weekend. I mean, these are hundreds of people who live in the shelter of Abraham's um, you know, camp here. He had, we identified in the chapters earlier, 318 trained men who annihilated an alliance of four kings. And so we're talking about a vast um, you know, camp that is under Abraham's control. And so all of a sudden, the guy in charge is running around. Um, yeah, that's going to cause commotion. And indeed it does. So as they're eating... And they're sitting there, and Abraham, kind of in a weird thing, is under the tree over here. They speak to him and says, okay, where is your wife Sarah, they ask, verse 9. There in the tent. So the tent is within eyesight of wherever they're eating the meal, because they can see that. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. (laughs) Now, Pause this for a minute. If you're Sarah, by the way, what are you doing right now? You're probably not on Pinterest yet, but might have been if it was around. You want to know what's going on. Like, why is my husband hurrying around? What are they going to say? And what's going to happen? And you're within eyesight of what's happening. And so you're probably where Sarah is, right near the entrance to her tent, so she can hear everything that's going on. And that's what we read next. That Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. And Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah's past the age of childbearing. So Sarah did what Abraham did in chapter 17. Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Now, I don't know about you, but the doubt right here, the doubt right here is immediate and the surprise is obvious. Her instinct is the same as mine. That is not to believe what doesn't seem believable. Her instinct is the same as mine. When I look around and see what is the most logical, that's what I tend to believe will happen. And this is not in that category. It's hard to imagine that supernatural intervention will happen in things like this. And I can understand the laughter. I can understand the doubt. 
And then the Lord said to Abraham in verse 13, it's as if, it's as if he's functioning in a different world. It's as if he's asking questions and answering them differently. It's as if his assumptions about the world are different than Sarah's because he asks the question, why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I'm old? It's, it's almost like that surprised me. I'm sorry. Why would she laugh at that? Like, what was, why, why, would she, why would she laugh at that? Now, I'm saying, like, I would totally laugh at that. I mean, that, that's ridiculous. What do you mean, why would she laugh at that? Because everybody knows that doesn't happen. It's, it's as if the two different worldviews come together for a minute, and, and God is saying, you're going to have a child next year, and Sarah's like, are you, do you see the world that I live in? Are you kidding me? Look at my limitations. I'm 90. He's 100. And God is like, I'm, what questions are you asking? I'm sorry, how are you even living your life? Do you live such a small life that you think you would laugh when I say something like that? Because they ask this singular question and they drop this question down and this is a singular question that's a game-changing question when it comes to faith. That people of great faith answer one way and people with small faith answer another way. And here it is in verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything, is anything too hard for the Lord? This question gets dropped right down in the middle of Sarah's life. And she has been answering this question one way, and God is answering it another way. Like, seriously? You're la- All I need to do is make a kid through a 90-year-old? I created this entire universe. What do you think, this is going to be a problem for me? Like, why is this funny? <laughs> why, would you, why would you laugh at that? And I find myself where Sarah finds herself because what goes through my mind is not, is anything too hard for God? What goes through my mind is this question, what is the most reasonable? What is the thing that I should expect? That's what goes through my mind. And this isn't reasonable. This isn't what I should expect. And Sarah, much like me, answers a big question about life the wrong way. And answers a big question about life in a small way. Is anything too hard for God? That's a huge question. And when I answer it in a small way, I live, and Sarah lives, a small life. A life of small faith, small trust, small confidence. Why in the world would I expect God to do something like this with a big question like that? It's unbelievable. See, I don't have a problem believing that God will one day bring peace in the world. I don't have a problem with that. But to think that God can change my family or the family dynamic that I've been living with, that's a whole other thing. I don't have a problem to think that God can provide, okay? I mean, he can provide all the things that people need. Sure, God is a provider. But that he can make ends meet this month, that he can find housing for people who need it, that he can help you with the financial problem that you're in, that he can redeem the broken relationship that you're in or your past of abuse, to think that God will reach into your life and do that? Are you kidding me? Is anything too hard for God? Listen, we know that the church answer is no. Right? I mean, it's all like, no, nothing's too hard for God. But to be honest, I live like, mm, maybe. Maybe. Like, maybe the family's too hard. Maybe the money is too hard. Maybe my past history is too hard. Maybe my failures are too hard. Maybe my shame is too hard for God to redeem that. Maybe my marriage is too far gone for God to redeem that. Maybe the hope that I have for my kids in the future is too far gone. I can't see that. So is anything too hard for God? Eh, not in the future, but right now. 
People with names? Problems with numbers? Right in front of me? Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Which is why I say this again. Responding to life's biggest questions with small answers leads to even smaller living. And I don't want that for you, and I don't want that for me. And here's what God goes on to do. It's amazing. In verse 15, Sarah was afraid, and so she lied and said, I didn't laugh. Ever been caught in that place? I have. And But he said, yeah, you did. <laughs> yes. Yes, you did laugh. I just want you to own it. I want you to identify it, Sarah. I'm not going to let you get away with this one. Listen, let's call it what it is. You didn't believe me. Your faith isn't there. We're not going to just walk by it. Let's stop at what it is and call it what it is and say, Sarah, yes, you did. You need to stop and have a moment, Sarah. You laughed. I'm asking the questions, anything too hard, but just stop. Don't, don't run by this one. Yeah, I, I did. I ran by it, and I just want to move on. I lied, and I didn't laugh. Sure, nothing's too hard, because you got me with a big question. So here's what I want for us. I want us to think about a couple things, and one is this. What questions am I asking? Now, I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning, I rarely ask this question. Is anything that I face today too hard for God? I usually tend to think, what is it that I need to do today? And then I begin to kind of pace out my energy and resources for the day or for the week and think, how can I get through what needs to be gotten through? How can I accomplish the objectives? How can I move the needle forward? Whatever it might be. But rarely do I think, is anything today too hard for God? Is anything in my family too hard for God? Is anything in my personal life too hard for God? Is anything with my ambition or direction too hard for God? I rarely think that way. And so... I need to ask the question, am I asking the question, is anything too hard for God, or what is the most realistic? What is the most realistic outcome in this scenario? What questions am I asking? And then secondarily, how am I answering them? How am I answering these questions? What am I asking, and how am I answering them? Because what I want for you, and I want for me, is to begin to think about how hard is this for God? to do what you and I can think is going to be impossible for him to do. And the category that's the hardest for me, and maybe the hardest for you, and I think this is why it was hard for Sarah, is the category that's hardest for me to believe is that when God doesn't work for a very long time, for year upon year upon year upon year upon year upon year upon year, it becomes hard for me to believe that any change is possible. It becomes hard for me to think that something different can happen. It just becomes hard. Now, here's, so I, here's what I want for you. I want you to consider this question that God drops in the middle of Sarah's life and ask yourself the question, come on, is anything too hard for God? Is anything that you face, is anything that you're afraid of, is anything that you wish too hard for God? And you will know the answer, the right answer is no. Especially because we're in church, that's the right answer. But if we're honest, we also live with sometimes, maybe, maybe, maybe this one is, and sometimes we live with, yes, actually, this is. So because I want to push you a little bit, I want to give you some guardrails to fleshing out this question because I can't leave you alone with, is anything too hard, because it goes further than that. I want to give you two guardrails and then drive home a little bit further. And I want to talk about some differences between um, a couple things when it comes to this kind of faith. So I want to talk about this. There's a difference between selfish delusion and nothing is too hard trust. I need to say this. There's a difference between selfish delusion and nothing is too hard trust. I want you to have nothing is too hard trust, but I also want to identify there's a category of selfish delusion that exists in the world. Um, 
to, for, for an example, a friend of mine, um, I'll call him John, when I went to school with him, Lancaster Bible College back in the day, um, he was convinced he was going to the NBA. He couldn't even make our basketball team. Okay. And, and consequently, like, I'm ser- like, he was convinced for years he was going to the NBA. I mean, this wasn't a weekend feeling. This was like, next year he's still thinking the same thing. And the year after that, he's still thinking the same thing. I'm like, John, listen, you're five foot eleven, brother. You can't even hit a three-pointer right now. You're not even, you can't even make our team, and you're going to the NBA. And he was convinced he was going to the NBA. What that did for him is it drew down his motivation. It drew way down his motivation. He's like, man, God's going to provide. Like God can, nothing's too hard for God, right? Like nothing's too hard. He can take me and make me an NBA player. I'm like, John, you are delusional. Like I, I wouldn't call that faith. I wouldn't call that trust in God, never too hard, nothing's too hard faith. I'm going to call that selfish delusion. There is a category that exists between the two. Another one is, man, I didn't study a lick for this test. Sure hope God comes soon. Nothing too hard for him. Let's name that promise and claim it, baby, right? I mean, that's, right? Like, no, 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 no. That's selfish delusion. That's like, I don't want to study, so let me kind of get a Bible reason and label it that so that I can be lazy and not do what I need to do. Same thing for work assignments. Like, I don't know if God's going to come through with my work assignment. I don't even know if I really need to work hard because I'm going to be the president one day of this place. Maybe I'm going to you know, take it over. Like, well, you need to show up to work first, right? Like, you need to do the things that, that help you move forward. Like, that just, there's a difference between selfish delusion and never too hard trust. I want you to have never too hard trust, but I want you to understand that category exists. Now, this other category, kind of on the other side, this one's a little more nuanced and a little harder. And this one seems super spiritual, by the way, when people uh, live in this. And I appreciate the heart behind it, but I want to draw it out without being a hard critic of it. But I want to be clear that there is some criticism needed so we don't fall into an unhealthy place spiritually, okay? And that is this. There's a difference here, but there's also a difference and a difference between presuming on God and nothing is too hard, trust. Here's what I mean by that. There are some people, especially when you look at very difficult circumstances, like someone with a terminal illness, who will, who will say that all you need to do is have enough faith and trust, and God will come through. He will come through. In fact, we're going to act that way now. I'm not going to do certain things. I'm not going to prepare for because I believe that God is going to come through. And nothing is too hard for God. Claim it. Let's have a prayer meeting and end the day. That is it. God is going to come through. And there is a difference between presuming upon God and having nothing to, is too hard trust. Our faith does not ever get over top of God's sovereignty. I cannot, with my level of faith, pull the lever of God and say, because I believe enough, I've made God do what I want him to do. Because I've had enough trust, this person is healed. Because I have had enough trust, this future is secure. Because I've had enough trust, this has happened. That's a presumption. I want you to believe that God can do anything. But I also want you to be careful not to presume that he will because you have mustered up enough, "Mm, yeah, he will do it, to kind of force his hand. There is a difference between presuming upon God and kind of putting ourselves in that position of presumption and having never, nothing is too hard kind of a trust. And we need to be careful with that, but I want that confidence to be there. And finally, and this is the camp I'm in, there's a difference between selfish delusion and a difference between presuming on God and between giving up and trusting. And that, I think, is where many of us can find ourselves if we're honest. It becomes easier. It becomes less challenging just to live 
as if the last 10 years will be like the next 10. To live as if the last five months will be like the next five months. It's less troublesome. It's also sometimes called giving up. Say, I I don't know if I'm even going to pray for this situation anymore because I think my kid will always be that way. I think my spouse will always. I think I will always have this temper. I think I'm always going to be in this financial problem. I think I will always have a lack of faith. I think when you begin to answer some big questions in small ways, it leads to really small living. And so there is a difference between kind of giving up, just thinking that the past is going to be the future, and having a trust, the kind of trust that this kind of question demands. Is anything too hard for God? I would love for that question to be dropped in the middle of your week and let things revolve around that for a minute and say, wait, is anything, is anything too hard for God right here? And so in that spirit, I want to give to you something this morning, and it's a, it's a prayer I want to give to you. Um, and what we've done is we have it on a little card in the back. So if you're someone who likes to write things down, you don't need to write down. I'm going to put the card up on the front here in the screen and let us just kind of talk through it a minute. Uh, but this is available for you just to pick up if you'd like on the Welcome Center on the way back. And I want to talk about this prayer, and I hope that it's something that you can take with you and pray at least once. Okay? Um, here's, here's where I'm saying. Dear God, please help me where my trust is weak. And please help me confront the question, is there anything too hard for you? I'd love for you to have this prayer and begin your day with a prayer. Help me confront the question. Help me be like you put Sarah in the crosshairs of you. You didn't let Sarah get away from it. You put her right there and said, why did you laugh? I didn't laugh. No, stop, Sarah. You did laugh. Stop. Talk about it. Stop. You don't believe. Let's identify it. No, you don't believe. Let's talk about it. You don't think anything will change with your family. You don't think you can have a kid next year. You don't think. You don't think. You don't believe. I mean, Sarah, let's own it. You're answering this question. Is there anything too hard for God? Your answer is yes. I can't have a kid next year. So stop and own it. And so I want to encourage you to put the question right there and reflect on it. Is there anything too hard for God? Help me to confront this question. And then I want to encourage you to continue. Please help me not to be delusional. Not to be presumptuous, but to be humble and confident in you. And then I want you to consider this. May those I interact with today see that I believe nothing is impossible with you, no matter what. I want to encourage you to think about the kids who are in your family, the people that you go to school with, the the peers that you interact with and rub shoulders with, the people in the church who are right around you, the employees that you engage with, the employers that you report to. May they see in you, what is up with you? (laughs) It's almost as if you think, there's a God who might be real, who might be able to do anything. And the prayer continues. And where my unbelief is strong and history has tamped down the belief that nothing can change in me, in my family or for my faith or in the future, please remind me that you are God Almighty how you introduced yourself to Abraham in Genesis 17. You are God Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen. I pray that you would take this prayer and consider it. That God can take especially the ground that has been tamped down, the history that has been tamped down, the stuff of your life that you've come to believe, that's just the way it is. And confront the question. Is anything too hard for God? and see what he can do through you. Because as I said at the beginning, how you answer life's biggest questions 
is going to drive your behavior and provide the direction for your life. And I don't want you and I don't want me to answer life's biggest questions in small ways because it'll lead to small living. Is there anything too hard for God? You get to answer that, and so do I. Next week, I want to invite you back to our conclusion of this series. I am really looking forward to this one, by the way. Um, The greatest challenge to faith that exists is what we're going to talk about next week. We're going to go a little bit deeper with this, and I'm looking forward to the challenge it'll be for us. Look forward to seeing you next week. Trust me, part six. Dear God, I thank you for the time we have together this morning, and I pray that as we confront this question, is there anything too hard for God? Is there anything too hard for you? For some of us, that means we might have to hope again, and we have just given up hope, and it becomes too difficult to think of trying again. And I get that. I understand that. There's history. There's reasons why we feel that way. For some of us, the idea of picking up again and trusting you and being asked to trust you feels like it's a setup for failure and disappointment again, and I understand that. And so I know it's a big question to drop in front of all of us, but I pray that you'd help us to have the courage to confront it, to look at it, to see it, and to own it, and to help us to own how we're answering it. That our lives would not be lives that are led in a small direction. That our faith is smaller and our predictability is higher. That we live in a world that only we can control and it feels like everything is going along just, just fine. So I pray that you would give us the courage to ask and answer this question. Is there anything? Come on, anything too hard for God. Help us not to be presumptuous. And help us not to be delusional, but help us to have this humble confidence that you can, if you will, do whatever you will, whenever you want. It's because of Jesus that we believe these things. It's because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that we have confidence. We have a hope that no matter what, you are God who can come through pray that you give us the courage to pray, to ask, and to live in the way that we should. That we can answer life's biggest questions with big answers. In Jesus' name.